If you'll keep your Bibles open and flip over to the New Testament, we're beginning a sermon series now on the book of Titus, on the book of Titus, and as you uh, flip over to the New Testament book of Titus, I'm going to say something pretty shocking, I believe. Actually, I'm being a little facetious, it's not shocking at all. If you pay attention to the news, or if you just simply look around our culture, you know that we live in probably the most predominant, sinful, wicked uh, culture that we ever have before uh, here in the United States of America. And that's something that is, or something like what's going on here in the book of Titus, because it takes place in this island, this city called Crete. And you have to know something about Crete. You have to know that Crete is known in the Roman Empire for being full of debauchery, being notoriously bad. And that's something to be said, isn't it? In the Roman Empire, for the whole of the empire to say, those people down in Crete, they live according to the flesh. They live desiring the things of the flesh. They let their fleshly uh, desires lead them uh, in paths of self-gratification and self-exaltation. And the Roman Empire is full of sin. I mean, you think about cities like Corinth. You think about cities like Rome. It's full of sin. It's full of debauchery. It's full of idolatry and the worship of false gods. But even all of those pagans look at the island of Crete, the city of Crete, and they say that is the worst of the worst. And that is where young Timothy, or young Titus rather, finds himself. Because here it is that the Apostle Paul, he, he intentionally writes this letter so that we might have a, a burning light, a bright light of the church that shines into the darkness of this wicked, sinful city. In fact, he, he tells us that we should not be led astray as a church, by the debauchery, by the sin, by the cultural currents around us, but that we must actually be in order. We must be reverent in our worship. We must be led well so that our light might shine that much brighter. You know, it's, it's, it's a simple game you can play. You take a flashlight in this well-lit sanctuary in the middle of the morning and the, and the flashlight wouldn't be that bright, would it? But if we were wait, to wait till midnight tonight and we were to cut off all the lights in the sanctuary and we were to cut that flashlight on, it would send forth a beam of light into the darkness. Well, that is what the Apostle Paul wishes for the church here in Crete, that The culture around them is dark, and yet the well-ordered church, the the Bible-preaching church, the well-led church by by faithful and and godly men will be a, a church that shines brightly into the dark places. 
And so our sermon series through the book of Titus is going to be called Blueprints of a Healthy Church. And the Apostle Paul, desiring to order the church well here in Crete, through the faithful ministry of Titus, uh, is going to tell us exactly what a healthy church looks like. And so it's fitting for us as a church to hear this book read and preached. And so with all that in mind, let us now read the first four verses The first four verses of this book. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, here it is. If you know anything about the Pauline letters throughout the New Testament, you know that Paul usually extends a warm greeting of sorts to his audience. And that's no different here as he writes to his beloved Titus. He says, my true child in a common faith. This is not a physical descendant of the Apostle Paul, but this is a spiritual descendant of the Apostle Paul. Titus being in his young to mid-30s at this point where when he is left in Crete to form the local church or form the visible church, he has already traveled with Paul for for upwards to 20 years. We know that Titus has joined the ministry and the mission trips of Paul uh, since a teenager, and now he is embarking on his own call to lead this church at Crete. We might call them the First Presbyterian Church of Crete. And why do we call them First Presbyterian? Well, we'll notice in the letter that Paul tells them to establish presbyters or elders for the local church so that they might be well-ordered, well-led, and well-established. And it's, it's, it's pretty interesting, I think, that as the Apostle Paul, even if we delve into some of the, some of the context of our selection this morning, the first four verses, as Paul begins to lay out, beginning in verse 5, reading through the rest of the chapter, these qualifications for presbyters, for elders, for, for overseers, he understands something about the ministry in which Titus has been called, that he is a lonely man trying to lead a church full of what Dr. Ryrie says, one of the commentators, low character. You see, he doesn't mean that they were kind of scoundrels of the city, but he simply means that if you were somebody within the city of Crete, if you had a level of prestigiousness, that you were one of the people who were going out and being gluttonous, or being sexually immoral, or just accepting or applauding the debauchery of of sinfulness that existed throughout the city. Of course you would be, if you were someone here in the city of Crete, you would be someone who worshipped many gods. 
And so you think about young Titus there in his early to mid-30s, something like myself. You are now in a sin-filled city. You are surrounded by sinfulness and sinful practices. Everyone in the city is applauding these sinful practices. The churches that had been established already within this city, they are accepting of these sinful practices. And even worse, they are accepting of these false gods. And and so so Titus is, is left here in the city of Crete. And Paul understands that he will need some reinforcements behind him. He will need some men to come alongside of him to do ministry, to shepherd the people, to ensure that the gospel is well preached. And so he will give us qualifications for elders that, Lord willing, we'll dive into next week. But before we can even get to that point where we're establishing the leadership of the church, the Apostle Paul wants to make sure that Titus, his true true child of the common faith, understands the message in which he is to go into Crete and to proclaim. And so there's really six thoughts or six items that I want to point out to you here in these, in these first four verses. None of them have much length to them. But there are six things I want you to pay careful attention to as we introduce this letter. The first one here is that Paul reminds his child of the faith, Titus, That he is a servant of God. Now, if you have a different translation, like the King James Version, you probably see something like bondservant. Or maybe even the King James Version will say exactly what the word is. Slave. If we were to scratch at the Greek language here in which it was originally written, this letter was originally written, we would know that this Greek word is doulos. And I know we don't have any Greek scholars here, but we have to understand something that our English translation seems to to take the edge off of the translation a little bit. The English translation takes the edge off off the reading of this text, but it literally says, Paul, a slave of God. Now, why would Paul consider himself a slave of God? Because he understands that he is the subject to the master. And so when Titus goes into the city of Crete, he must understand the same thing. That the master has commanded him to go into this city and to preach the good news of the gospel. He is not under any sort of co-authority with God. His commission is simply to go. To go into Crete, and as a faithful subject of the Master, Titus is to execute it. Titus is to go and do it. He's not to make excuses. He's not to to kick the can down the road, we might say. But he is to, with swift obedience, do what his Master, the Lord Himself, has called him to do. And isn't that what we see through the ministry of Paul? Paul has to do some some grave work within the kingdom of Christ. Paul has to stand before kings. He has to stand before emperors. He must stand before mobs who want to 
to silence him and, and put him to death. And, and yet, he knows as the subject to the master that he must be about the master's business. And, and actually, we see Paul throughout his ministry even desiring to go into different regions throughout the known world. He desires to go to Macedonia and Asia, and yet the Lord tells him, no, you're not going to go there, you're going to go here. And Paul says, because I'm a subject to my master, the Lord, I'm going to go where he commands. And so that is how the ministry of Titus must, must be here within the city of Crete. He must understand, he must understand the, the power dynamic, we might say. That the Lord is in control and He is just a bondservant. He is just a slave to the Master. He must be about the Master's business. But the way in which Paul speaks here within these first, really, five words of this letter is unlike the rest of the introductions of the Apostle Paul. Usually the Apostle Paul writes his letter, introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And here he says that he is a servant of God. Now don't let that pass you by because I think that Paul is, an, is establishing a very important foundation to the ministry of Titus here in the city of Crete. Paul is now attaching himself to characters within the Old Testament who are called servants or slaves of God. We think about people like Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, he was called a slave, a slave to God, a servant of God. Joshua in Joshua 24 is literally called a slave of the Lord, a servant of the Lord. David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is called exactly the same thing. And even when Isaiah is before the king there in Isaiah 20 prophesying on behalf of the Lord, he is called one of God's many servants or slaves. And so Paul very intentionally begins to connect himself with the authority of these great men in the Old Testament and he connects it to him talking about the great authority that he has as, as an apostle and he's reminding Titus, this is also the authority that you have. Not only are you to be about the master's business, but you must understand that you have the authority to be about the master's business. Well, Matt, you just said just a few moments ago that there is no co-authority that exists between God and Titus. Well, yeah, I did say that. But now you're saying that Titus has an authority to go out about Crete and establish this church. Yes, I said that as well. How do we harmonize the two? Actually, I don't think there's a, there's a better place that harmonizes the two other than the very beginning of our book of church order. Now, I know that sounds crazy to you, that the book of church order for the Presbyterian church in America could harmonize a theological truth. But here's what it says. It says that Christ is the head of the church, Colossians 1. It says, from His throne on high, He works as prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, He speaks to His people through His word. As priest, He intercedes at the right hand of God. As king, He rules over His church and His people. 
But in his mere good pleasure, the book of church order says, he calls upon the ministry of men to execute these three offices as prophet Titus and these other elders that will soon be appointed will guard the pulpit of the church, making sure, ensuring that the word of God is well preached. As priest, they will stand in the gap of God's people, this local church, and that they will pray for them and with them. As king, they will rule. They will sit and they will rule over God's people here at Crete. That's why we call it a session. Did you know that? Did you know that we call it a session meeting because we sit and we rule over the church that God has given us authority over? That is what's being established here in Crete. Christ is the head of the church. The elders of the church, the pastor of the church, we're just slaves to the master. We're doing the master's business, but the master has now given us authority over this branch of the visible church, therefore executing the offices of prophet, priest, and king for the people of God in this place. And so this idea that that Paul is pushing forward not only a servant of God, the first thing I want you to note, but an apostle of Jesus Christ, there's an authority that exists within the leadership of the church because they have been commissioned, they have been called by God to execute that office. Well, the third thing I want you to see here is there at the end of verse 1, or maybe part C of verse 1. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now here is the ministry of the local church, the church disciples. The church operates, the church worships for God's people. That is their mission. Their mission is for God's people. The pastor, the elders. Paul is saying, I have committed my life to this ministry. Titus, you are committing your life to this ministry for the sake of the faith of God's elect, God's people. And so there's easily things being distinguished here within the words of Paul. There are God's people in Crete, and there are going to be those who are not God's people in Crete. Your ministry, Titus, is for God's people. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, beloved. It's not that evangelism is not important. Evangelism is utmost important within the life of the church. And as we disciple the people within our local congregation, they will be about evangelism. It's a a sign of the fruit of the gospel. That the gospel takes the heart of the believer and it overflows with joy and grace so that they must tell somebody about them. It's exactly what happens with the shepherds on the first Christmas night. They hear the good news of great joy for all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And what do they do? They run and they go see the Christ child. They worship and then they go tell the whole city. And it's just like the the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. The woman at the well meets Jesus there 
in the midst of the day, in the middle of the day. And He confronts her sins. She believes upon His name. And what does she do? She goes and tells everyone about Him in the city. So evangelism is important. It's an important piece of, of God's work throughout His people or through His people. But understand this, the church's ministry is for the faith of God's people. And you know, so one of the things that, that has happened within the church movement within the past, you know, 20 years, 10, 15, 20 years, is that there's been, so, there's been a movement that says, we must make the people feel, the outsiders, the unbelievers, we must make them feel comfortable here within the, the worship of the church. And so churches have done away with reverence. In fact, you, I actually know of churches that have taken their Bibles out of the church pews because they don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Sinners should feel uncomfortable here. God's Word is proclaimed. The people of God are sanctified. God's Word is preached. It should be uncomfortable for the, for the person living in the world. Because this isn't, this isn't the world's worship. This is God's worship by God's people on God's day. And so the ministry of the church is for God's people. And the ministry of the church must be seeking the knowledge of the truth within God's people, which then accords with godliness, it says. In fact, again, if we were to, to scratch at the original Greek here within our text, it's, it's implied that it says knowledge upon knowledge. You see, the, the work of the church, the ministry of the church, the, the preaching, the Sunday school classes, the Wednesday night programs, all of them are geared towards discipleship. It's geared to you learning more about Jesus, growing in the knowledge of the truth of God's Word. We are not to be a people who stay upon the milk of the Gospel. But we must be a people who feast upon the meat of the Gospel. We must be about the business of learning more about our God, deeply studying His Word, and and making sure that His Word penetrates our heart in such a way that it pours itself over into action. You know, this is critical to see. Because the, the deep knowledge of truth is necessary, Paul is saying here, to true godliness. If you want to be a godly man, if you want to be a godly woman, if you want to be a godly husband or a godly wife or a godly father or a godly mother or a godly grandparent, a godly businessman, a godly teacher, a godly lawyer, a godly doctor, a godly preacher, whatever it might be, you must have a knowledge of God's Word. There is no godliness without understanding that we must find our godliness as it's poured out for us in the Scriptures. As God, by His Spirit, makes application to our heart. And of course, that is something that Crete needs as a city, right? It's something that our world needs today. 
But understand, the ministry of the church is to disciple believers so that they might be sent out into the lost and dying world. So that they might proclaim the grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So that they might bring hope into a hopeless world. And you see, that's what the fifth thing that I want you to note. The fifth thing that I want you to see here is that is that godliness in verse 2 will cause you to have hope in eternal life. You see, if we go into a lost and dying world, one of the things that is missing within our culture, within our society, is this idea of hope. You know why people say self-gratify? Because they think, they believe wholeheartedly that we have this life and nothing after So we're going to live this life to the fullest, however we please. But if we can take hope to the hopeless, and we can say there is so much more on the other side of death, on the other side of eternity, then we can have a surety of God's promises. And you see, why we have a surety of God's promises is because there in verse 2, He never lies. He never lies. His promises are sure. And in in fact, they are before the ages began. What does Paul mean as he says that the promises of God are before the ages began? He means that they are before the foundations of the world. Before God even spoke the world into existence, the promise of the gospel was sure. The promise of the gospel was certain. The promise of the gospel and his salvation of sinners was set in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we see that, that, that a deep knowledge of our Bibles will turn into godliness on this side of heaven and hope on this side of heaven. That we will live like Christ and then we'll have hope in the resurrection of the body which is to come. But then the sixth and the final thing I want you to see is that in fact these these people of God, this local church in which Titus is building and ordering, uh, he's bringing leadership, he's bringing structure, he's bringing reverence to, this church is going to go out into Crete and they're going to carry the grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, beyond the the local church just being a good thing for a city, that the common graces of, of churches belonging to the city, that they do good work, they care for the widows and the orphans if they're going about ministry the right way, they care for the least of these, all these things are true. And so there's a common grace, right, for the city. But but really, truly, how are we to carry grace and peace? from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, we're supposed to proclaim it. We're supposed to proclaim it. And beloved, if you aren't entrenched in the knowledge of the truth that is found in your Bible, you cannot proclaim Jesus faithfully. See, what's happened within within our context is that people are living in sin and debauchery, And they have a philosophy for why they live that way. 
They have agendas that are pumped into their brains on why they can live that way. These are not uneducated sinners that we are dealing with. They are, they are men and women and children who are bearing their heels down in their wickedness and they're saying, this is who I am and you cannot budge me. Well, we need to be the exact opposite. We need to be rooted in God's Word and we need to be able to say with all the knowledge of truth that we can possess, being ready in season and out of season to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ we must also be educated within our Bibles so that we might preach grace, so that we might share peace with a lost and a dying world, so that we might do the very thing that Jesus said for us to do in Matthew chapter 28, go into the nations proclaiming the good news of the gospel, teaching them all that I have commanded you and Lo, I am with you always into the very end of the age. You know, it's fitting for us to not only hear God's Word preached this morning, but also to experience it at the Lord's table. Because the promise of God being with us is especially known as we gather together for the ordinary means of grace. We believe that the Spirit of God is present in the reading and the preaching of His Word, we believe that the Spirit of God is present, especially as we gather around the Lord's table. It's a mystery far beyond my simple understanding. But John Calvin says, the, the great uh, father of Presbyterianism, you might say, he says, by His Spirit, God calls us into the heavens so that we might have a foretaste, an appetizer of what it means to really feast with Him. And so there is something special about this table. He is spiritually present as we eat of the bread, as we drink of the cup. But it's an act of graciousness from our God as well. Because our God knows, as weak, sinful individuals, that we don't only need to hear God's Word, but we need to hold it, touch it. We need to smell it. We need to taste it. And so the Gospel is clearly displayed. Here as we remember the Lord's death until He comes again. But it just, just doesn't have past implications for us. It has future implications as well. That it should cause our hearts to, to long for the marriage supper of the Lamb that will take place in heaven. You know, it's, it's a little afternoon already. And our stomachs are beginning to rumble. We're beginning to be hungry. Well, this... this little piece of bread and this little cup of grape juice is not going to curb your appetite. It's not much for the physical body, but it is much for the spiritual body. Because it is to nourish us. It's to sanctify us. It's to cause us to long for heaven that much more. It's a reminder of the Gospel, the full picture of God's redemptive history that all the way back in Genesis 3, He promised that someone would come, His Son would come, to crush the head of the serpent. And we know at the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, He deals the death blow to Satan, taking all the sins of His people upon Himself, cleansing us as white as snow, being buried, but of course raising in victory and sitting in heaven, longing for the day that He gets to return again for His people.
You know, it's that gospel message that this table proclaims. It's that gospel message that Paul commissions Titus to proclaim. It's going to be this same gospel message that will be at the forefront of the church at Crete. And this morning as we come, this is the, the mantra. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. That is the very theme of our church and our hearts. This is not the table of First Presbyterian Church, nor is this the table of the Presbyterian Church in America, but this is the Lord's table. And so all those who come uh, professing Christ, all those who come longing to taste and see that the Lord is good, you are invited to this table. You are invited to take and eat. You are invited to feast upon Christ. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not a a believer upon the Lord Jesus, if you do not profess Him as King and Lord of your life, we ask that you would not partake of this meal. For you are eating and drinking judgment upon your soul. Just as the ministry of the church is for God's people, communion is for God's people. And communion is for God's people who will come knowing that as they confess their sins, that they are forgiven through Christ who is faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And so, even if you profess Christ and you have sin within your life that you cannot repent of, that's harboring down deep within your soul, deep within your heart, let these elements pass you by and let the Holy Spirit convict you of those sins. Flee to Christ and receive mercy and grace. As the elders come, let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this meal which is the Lord's Supper. And we pray, Lord, that it would be spiritually nourishing to us, that by Your Spirit, that You would dwell with us, feast with us, and that we might uh, taste and long for the eternal lives, the eternal glories that are to come. Father, if there be anyone here that does not profess You, we pray, Lord, that this would be a, a simple reminder of Christ and Him crucified, and this might be the day of their salvation. If there's those who are harboring sin in their heart, would they see the mercy of Christ as we hold up the body which was broken, the blood which was shed for sinners like me. And may they repent of their sins knowing that God, through Jesus Christ, will take our sins and remember them no more as we come confessing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.